First Timothy chapter four continues. We have actually been in it now a couple of weeks, but I want to start in verse one and roll on into the rest of the chapter. I told you on Sunday we would start in the first section, part one, talking about the spiritual danger. Let's review that. And then we will get to the servant's discipline. The spiritual danger, verse 1, chapter 4, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And so he begins talking about dangers, spiritual dangers. We called it Sunday dangers in the dining room. And the reason I called it that is these are spiritual dangers that Paul warns against in the very place where we should be gaining nourishment, where we should be fed and strengthen at the table where we come to dine and be nourished there are concerns that Paul has specifically for Ephesus but they are equally concerning today and in churches today and around tables of, of fellowship and he illuminates those we went through these on Sunday deceitful spirits let me remind you that deceitful spirits can be demons They can also be simply human spirits, or they can be, a third one we didn't really talk about, is a demon-possessed person. So the deceitful spirit can be the demon deceiving, it can be a person who is possessed by a demon that is deceiving, and it can just be a human being just being deceitful because they've been deceived. And then there are doctrines of demons, twisting the truth. Uh, The thing that's interesting to me says doctrines of demons It tells me that there's something organized about the way that they think and about the lies that they spread. There's some organization, as in a doctrine, that demons would profess. And then the third one is disingenuous liars or hypocritical liars. You remember the word from Sunday, liars is pseudo-logos. So false word people. But I want you to notice this. What's interesting to me in this opening section about spiritual danger is the threats that are spoken by Paul to the church. They do not include lust, gluttony, greed, slothfulness, wrath, envy, or pride. The so-called seven deadly sins, perhaps you've heard of those, the cardinal sins, which I'm not sure why they're called the cardinal sins unless it's the cardinals who are doing it. But anyway... The seven deadly sins. You would think, okay, if there's danger in the church, it's that sinner in the third row. It's, it's that person bringing that filth into the building. That's, that's the danger. Whoa, look out for that. No, that's not what Paul lists at all. Interesting, because what that tells me is that any sinner is welcome to repent, to come, and to dine at the table of the Lord. Because if that weren't the case, not one of us could be here tonight. And I want to encourage you again, because we go through these seasons, I want to encourage you all to be aware that you may be sharing a row with some horrific sinner. Don't look around. I know you're all going, really? (laughs) 
But my point is this. We need not be afraid of the sins of our brothers and sisters. Because the bottom line is if someone is in the midst of some sin and they're here, they're hearing what they need to hear. They are in the right place. And that this is a hospital for the beat up and the bloodied and the broken and the bruised. And we've got to be that way. We have got to be receiving of each other in that way. That is not a threat to the church. We still preach the truth. We speak what is right. We are in the Word of God and we share these things together. We come before the Lord in honesty and openness. We do call for repentance. Now, someone sitting there in blatant rebellion, that's another thing. That needs to be dealt with. But someone who's just messed up and broken, well, that's any of us at any given time. And so we must be a people who are receiving each other. I was sitting over there praying during worship. Lord, You are welcome in this place. And I heard Him say, Is everybody welcome here? Paul doesn't list the sins as the danger. He lists deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons and disingenuous liars. The real danger in the dining room of the assembled church is not the needy sinner. It never has been. It's when God's good food is messed with. That's the danger. It's when the truth is tweaked. It's when the Word is served up, twisted, and messed up, and legalized, and cauterized, and the Bible says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him, because we need Him most when we are starved and broken and weak. So if that's you tonight, if you're feeling like maybe the, the end of a long season of rebellion... Or perhaps it's just been a messy day sin-wise. Maybe there are things that you think, man, if people knew, I would be ushered out of here in a heartbeat. Let me assure you, you are right where you need to be. At the table of the Lord, to be fed and nourished and restored by Him. Well, let's continue on though, because what I really want to get to tonight is the the last part of the chapter where we deal with part two, the servant's discipline. Paul illuminates the, the spiritual danger, but he's talking to a servant and he's saying, I want you to be aware of this and then I want you to be disciplined in response to it. And he says in verse six, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, we talked about this on Sunday, that servant is diakonos. And it's the word we use for deacon. But this is not talking about a church office. Yes, Timothy was serving in an official official capacity there in Ephesus. And yes, you can apply this to, to pastors or to, to ministers or to servants. But he's talking to a servant about what it means to be a servant. The application of the rest of chapter 4 is not for the hired staff. Well, no, let me rephrase that. It is for the hired staff and everyone else. It is for all of us who would be called servants of Jesus Christ. Do you desire in your life to be a faithful servant of Jesus? If you do, this chapter is for you. If you don't, well then, I don't know why you're here. Even if you're here to be restored, even if you're here to find forgiveness, even if you're here to receive grace, that grace then leads us into the function of a servant. Think about the prodigal son. Jesus tells in the parable how he came home. Do you remember what his heart, what his attitude was? Not to be restored as a son, but simply to be a servant in the house. Father, just make me a servant. 
And that's good enough. That's all I want. Just to serve in your household. And of course, what does the father do? He makes the servant a son. And he'll do the same with you and with me. He makes us sons and daughters. Though we are but privileged to serve in the house. Tonight is good food. The rest of this chapter on being a disciplined servant. Man, this is bread and butter. Okay, it's not like a a sweet French dessert. You know, this is not like gourmet for the connoisseur. This is just good food. And I hope we can take it that way. Seven things I'm going to give you to note as we go through it. And the first one is very simply that the servant is well fed. You want to be a disciplined servant of the Lord, it begins with your diet. You are well fed. Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished, well fed then. Pointing out, it's interesting that phrase. I, sometimes I don't even know why I'm looking up a word. In pointing out these things to the brethren, I just felt like I needed to say, well, what is pointing out? And it is the word hupotithimai. Let's say that together. Hupotithimai. Okay, what's the big word? Listen, to place under. Or to instruct or to teach. That's how we define hupotithamai in pointing these things out to the brethren. In other words, in placing these things under the brethren. But there's another definition for it that I find really interesting. It also means to place the neck. Let me tell you how it's used in Romans 16, verse 3. Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. Who for my life, hupotithemai. What Paul just told Timothy is, I want you to risk your neck for the brethren. I want you to stick your neck out for the brethren. And as you do so, they will be well fed. The well-fed servant of the Lord sticks his neck out, sticks her neck out, puts their faith on the line for other people. Now, maybe that sounds a little heavier. Stick your neck out. That's like you're going to get your head chopped off. Well, Paul did, didn't he? Ultimately. But it doesn't have to be that serious. It's simply saying, I'm willing to speak. Though I might be embarrassed, though I might not have all the answers, Though I might be shunned or rejected or shut down, I'm willing to speak. I'm going to say, I'm going to speak the word of the Lord. I'm willing to stick my neck out. Yes, Lord. That's what a faithful servant does. Fed by the word, well fed, will turn around and then just speak what you've learned. It's as simple as going into the office on Thursday morning and saying, man, I heard the coolest thing last night. Really? What was it? Well, let me tell you. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. The well-fed servant is willing to stick their neck out to point out, to place the truth under other people that they might be fed by it as well. Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life. Teeth am I for his friends. Putting it out there. Now honestly, how many of us will ever actually have the opportunity to risk our lives for the faith Trust me, you will have plenty of opportunities to put your faith on the line. We don't have to worry about whether or not the opportunities are come. We just need to be well fed so when they come we have a word to speak. That we're ready to respond. To act on on what we say we believe. 
But here's the key to this. As we stick our necks out, first we're well fed, then we stick our necks out and share what we've been fed, and you know what happens? It feeds us. It's one of the coolest dynamics of sharing the Word of God. The more you share the Word, the more you are fed by the Word. And I am absolutely convinced, at least on our Sundays and Wednesdays, I am the fattest person in the fellowship. I am the most nourished. I am the best fed because I study. I have to take it in. I share it. And even as I'm sharing it, I'm learning all over. I'm like sitting back there with Deb going, man, that's good. Wow, that's life changing. Ooh, that's, that, that's really funny. Now see, that's why I would sit by Debbie. We'd laugh together about these things. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And so it's that very cool dynamic that if you're a well-fed servant of the Lord and you're speaking the word of the Lord to others, it turns around and it feeds you a second time. It establishes even more your understanding of the Word of God. So take it in, learn it, feed on it, share it, and you will find yourself even better fed in the process. And then Paul says in verse 7, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Okay, stop right there. Are you serious? Did he, did he just say that? Did Paul write that? Only (laughs) Okay, well let's jot this down. The second thing is a servant rejects worldly fables. Servant's well fed, but also rejects worldly fables. But before we get to the empty calories of worldly fables, we gotta deal with this old women comment. It's a little shocking. And it's a phrase that some have used to tie into the fact that, well, Paul is just a woman hater. That's his deal. You know, he's a chauvinist pig, which is so unfair to Paul. And only comes from the mind of one who has not studied Paul. I've shared with you before, if you read through and go through and study through, as we've been doing all of the letters of Paul, you cannot come to the conclusion that Paul hates women. You can only come to the conclusion that Paul has the same love for his sisters as for his brothers and knows that in Christ Jesus all are one. That's Paul. So we come to a phrase like this where he says, only fit for old women. And I think, how do we deal with this? The word old women, if you want to jot this down, and if your translation doesn't say old women, maybe it says old wives fables or something like that. The King James translates it old wives tales. But old women in the NASB is grahodes. And grahodes can be translated silliness or silly ones. Here's the, the idea behind it. And just understanding, sometimes we've got to look at the ancient Greek. It, it helps us to draw in and understand what he's trying to say. It was a sarcastic term. used in, Commonly used in the argumentations of the Greek philosophers. You can find this term in many of the old Greek texts. Where a philosopher will refer to it, will use it, grahodes. And again, the King James says old wives' fables. Now, if I were to say, oh man, that's an old wives' tale... I wouldn't be approached by a bunch of old wives that night who were offended. Because we all know what that means, an old wives' tale. It's a silly talk. It's something that's not legitimate, not true. So we get that euphemism in our culture. That's what this is. It's euphemistic in Greek culture for silliness, for silly talk. 
It is not meant as a pejorative against a certain group of people. And if you want more proof on that, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. How does Paul say to treat an older woman in Christ Jesus? As a mother. Treat her as you would your own mom. Show her that kind of respect and dignity and love. That's how you treat someone who is older in Christ, whether male or female. If it's an older man, treat him as you would a father. Don't call him a daughtered. Treat him as a father. Treat her as a mother. So that's Paul's heart. But listen to what uh, one commentator, Mounts, says this. This word, grahodes, perhaps the harshest description of the opponent's theology is an important word in an overall understanding of the pastoral epistles. It shows that the theology of the opponents, Paul's opponents, whether in Ephesus or in Crete, is vacuous and is no better than prattle. It also explains why Paul doesn't spend more time arguing against the heresy itself. Now get this. This is a servant's tool here, so understand this. A person cannot argue against prattle. That is a wise word and one we need to take in. You cannot argue foolishness. You will never win an argument against foolishness, against grahodes, against silliness, against old wives' tales. You're not going to win arguments like that. And yet we as Christians often find ourselves engaging in exactly that. Silly, foolish, lame arguments which do not produce the desired result. Paul addresses this again and again and again. And it is interesting to me that he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the actual heresies. We have to kind of piece that together. We read First and Second Timothy and Titus, we can get kind of an idea of maybe what the heresy was, but Paul doesn't really spell it out. Why not? Because it's prattle. Because it's just foolishness. It's not worth the time of day. What Paul does say back in chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Timothy, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called the gnosis or the knowledge. He says to Titus in chapter 3, verse 9, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and strife, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable, they are worthless. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, again he says, Avoid worldly and empty chatter. It will lead to further ungodliness. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. So six times... Paul comes back to the same thing. Don't get involved in foolish argument. And we might say, okay, Paul, we get it. Do we? How many of you as believers have ever in your life found yourself in the midst of a foolish argument? Trying to debate someone, I I, I got it today. My son Hayden is is great with this, not in producing the foolish arguments, but anytime something is posted to him on Facebook that challenges faith, he shoots it to me. Dad, how do I answer this? 
I'm like, learn how yourself. What am I, your pastor? I'm not even sure how that works. Pastor Dad. And he shot one to me today, and it was all about how the Bible is foolishness and how it doesn't hold up and how it was based on manuscripts that are now long lost. And it basically was lies. For anyone who has read and studied the canon of Scripture, who knows the validity, who knows of the internal evidence of Scripture and the external historical archaeological evidence, it's overwhelming. No book has been more criticized than the Bible, and no book holds up better than the Bible in all history. But this silly Facebook post was out there, and you know what it was? It was bait for a fight. And that's what oftentimes a non-believer will do, is try to bait you into an argument, and it becomes a smokescreen for the real issue, which is Jesus Christ. If I can get you arguing with me over some silly prattle, then we're not talking about the real issue, which is my lostness, and he's the only one who can save me. That's what we need to be talking about. Not whether or not this is contradictory here or, or that's a problem there. No, it's, it's Jesus. I, I've said many times, we are not here to start fights. We are here to set people free. Or to be used by the grace of God to see people set free. We are not here to win arguments. We are here to win souls. And that's the point. So don't get drawn into this stuff. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant, and we're talking about being faithful, disciplined servants, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Don't get drawn into arguments with family. I know that never happens, especially around the holidays. You never get into those foolish arguments with family. Sure we do. We get drawn into that stuff all the time. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting perhaps those who are in opposition, if God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And here's the real issue. So many debates have been won in the moment while lives were lost for eternity. I won that talk. I proved the veracity of Scripture. Yeah, and the non-believer goes away just more offended than ever before. So what I said to Hayden today with this Facebook post was, I said I would, I'd ask two things. I'd ask, number one, will you say you don't believe this? Okay, what do you believe? And then the second thing I would ask is, what do you think of Jesus? And I would just keep coming back to Jesus again and again. Well, I just don't believe the Bible. because I didn't ask about that. I asked, what do you believe about Jesus? The reality is there has been no human being in 6,000 years of Western civilization and history. There has been, or of all civilization, there has been no human being who has so changed the entire planet like Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, he did it in a little backwater region of the world, up in the Galilee of Israel, at a time when Israel was no longer a world power, no longer a strength, an oppressed people, a little baby is born, grows up in Nazareth, goes into the Galilee, starts preaching the gospel, doesn't do it in days of any kind of media, much less, much less social media. How did he get his message out? How does one man change the world by becoming President of the United States or by being born a baby in Bethlehem? The the life of Christ, my friends, 
It is absolutely ridiculous to say that the life of Jesus, that's how you change a world. And yet He did. So whatever you think about the Bible or think you think, whatever misinformation you've been handed about, you know, the truth or about the Word of God, hey, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do just with a historical man who has completely altered the planet? Nobody has done what he did. Oh, and by the way, he died when he was 33, uh, crucified a criminal. How does that work? If you deal with nothing else, you got to deal with Jesus. He is the point. When a servant gets sidetracked by worldly fables, the risk is not that we might find ourselves ashamed or losing the argument. The risk is a soul may be lost. So don't get drawn into that stuff. Just keep coming back to Jesus again and again. The servant is well fed and they're therefore able to feed others, which then feeds them again. The servant of Christ rejects worldly fables. Number three, the servant works out faith. And a workout ain't easy. And a workout doesn't happen in 45 minutes in the gym one time. If it did, I'd be awesome. It's, it's not a one-shot deal. You know that. The servant works out faith. Verse 7 going on, Paul says, On the other hand, discipline yourselves or yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself. For bodily discipline is of only little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Man, the best workout of your life is the kind that produces godliness. It will make you strong, not only eternally, but immediately. It will make your walk stronger. The discipline that works out godliness. I absolutely believe this is not only faithfulness for the eternity to come, but it is fitness for life right now. That godliness is how you stay spiritually fit right now. In this life. You know what's interesting? And let me give you an absolutely practical example of this. Our most, I think our entire staff is on MediShare. Christian care ministry, it's the insurance sharing thing. And you've heard, if you listen to Praise 106, they're the ones who do the little commercials every now and then. That's, we're on that. I'm on that. That's my medical insurance, although it's not technically insurance, but it counts for Obamacare, so I'm good to go. Whatever happens to the ACA. But, MediShare, MediShare is incredibly inexpensive by comparison to other insurance plans. Why? Because you have to be a believer. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, they they went into this business recognizing that if someone is a follower of Jesus Christ, they are probably living a little more fit than somebody who is not. I'm not talking about gym membership. I'm just talking about how do you treat your body. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, they assumed as an insurance type group that Christians are going to be more physically fit. Guess what? The costs associated with Christians signed up for MediShare are far less than the costs associated with people who are not believers in Jesus at all. Which to me is practical evidence that godliness makes for a more fit life. But that right there, it costs less. You're not paying for abortions with MediShare. 
That's not happening. Drug and alcohol abuse. Oh, come on, Rick. Christians are hypocrites. There are alcoholics in, in, in the church too. I, I know that. I know that. But they're fewer and further between and mostly are recovering. Because <laughs> that's what Jesus does is He recovers us. But I find that really interesting. That by simply following Jesus, there is a fitness pattern. There is a healthiness to it, even physically, because you've chosen to follow the Lord that is unlike the rest of the world. And we work out in this. The servant works out faith. And it's more than simply physical fitness. Obviously, back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we pointed this out when we studied Philippians. It can be translated easily, work out in your salvation. It's not work for your salvation. It's work it out, man. Strengthen it. Walk in it. Live it. And then Paul says, Philippians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And as Charles Spurgeon said, we must work out because God works in. So the spiritually disciplined life is a life of workout. People who will be gym rats and go to the gym three, four, five days a week I say to you, you will gain more profit if you will be in the Word of God four or five days a week. Or every day of the week. You put your time in prayer and the the Word of God and you will find yourself, even physically, but absolutely spiritually and also mentally fit. Because a servant of the Lord works out faith. You pursue holiness. You build spiritual muscle. Again, through the nourishment of the Word, through prayer, and through the simple ministry of the servant. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 says, Let a man regard us in this matter, or in this manner, as servants, as ministers of Christ, and as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. So work out in it. Keep working on it. Not to save yourself. But knowing that as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Keep going. Verse 9. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive. It's for what that we labor and strive? What's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance? You see, up till now, Paul has several times in the pastoral epistles where he says, it's a trustworthy statement. And this is another one of those, but it kind of sits here in the middle of, in the middle of this passage. And, and Bible scholars are uncertain, what is it connected to? It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and we strive. Now he goes on to say, because we fixed our hope on the living God, but that's not the trustworthy statement. So what's the trustworthy statement, Paul? What are you talking about here? For what does Paul labor and strive? And for that, you need to bump back up to verse 7, the latter part of the verse, where he says, again, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. It is for this we labor and strive. What? Godliness. Godliness. Now, get this. This to me is huge. This is one of those, whoa, really? 
Never saw this before. Twice in succession here, in verse nine, verse or verse seven and eight, sorry, he uses this word godliness. The word is Eusebia. It's where the name Eusebius comes from. If you've ever heard about Eusebius, he's the father of church history. He wrote the book on the history of the church back all the way to the to the fourth century. Eusebius told us many things we wouldn't have known if he hadn't written it down. So an amazing guy. But his name literally means godliness. Eusebia. Godliness. It's for this we labor and strive. Godliness. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Pursue godliness. How do I do that? Well, where have we seen the word most recently? Go back up to verse 16 of chapter 3. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the Spirit was vindicated. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The description of Jesus Christ all the way through from incarnation to, to ascension. And Paul says, that's the mystery of godliness. That's the key. So the statement that is deserving full acceptance is that we ought to be those who pursue godliness. And this is the secret to all godliness in the life of the servant. Number four, the servant walks filled. The servant walks filled. Colossians 1.27 God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Godliness is Christ in me. Man, it's a trustworthy statement. If you want to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to be filled with Jesus Christ. You cannot be a servant of Jesus unless He abides in you. Unless He is welcomed in, invited into your heart. To be part of the, of the life that you're living. Now, listen, this is so important. I, I was talking with a brother who feels like too much of a failure to be the man that he thought he was. Have you ever in your life realized that you were not what you thought maybe you could be? That you failed so big that maybe you did something you never thought you would go there, but you did. Never thought it was capable of that, but here I am. And what happens with that, when we sin like that, we start to wallow in it. In fact, we tend to spiral. And guilt pours in and shame pours in. And I have heard so many times over the last 30 years, people say, and yeah, sometimes it was out of my own mouth, I've blown it too big for God ever to use me again. And so we sit in it. Woe is me. Listen. It never was you. But I was such a a strong follower of Jesus. No, you weren't. Yes, I was. I I was faithful and I was consistent and I, I was teaching the Word. No, you weren't. Hey, I was there. No, you weren't. If you think it was you. You were out of class that day. If you think you were the one that ever did the good things that you did in the name of the Lord. No, He did it in you. And what we need to realize is when we are spinning out in our own sin, we got to stop and go, whoa, I repent. Jesus, you got to work in me. Because it's, 
God who wills and works for His good pleasure. It's Christ in you. And that's why we call it, that's why Paul says Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because you ain't got the hope of glory. I am not hoping that somehow I'm getting, you know what, 53 years old last week, I am not getting better. Day by day, I'm getting worse. Physically. So what is the hope of glory? Christ in me. Because I'll tell you what, as a servant of Jesus, I see Him doing things and I go, whoa. And I'm just starting to figure out, it's all Him. It is you, Jesus. It never was me in the first place. My holiness, my goodness, my godliness, it's all Christ in me. We walk filled. A servant does. Recognizing that it is Jesus at work. I'm filled with a wonder. Paul says a treasure. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. I love that verse because earthen vessels describes a clay pot. That's you and me. Earthenware. What happens if we're dropped? How many of us are crackpots? I mean, you know, if that's, that's the picture biblically of us. Clay molded by the potter, hardened, and now we're a pot. The best I have to offer is maybe I can contain something. And Paul says, let it be Jesus. You are filled with a treasure. The Spirit of the living God. In verse 10, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially of believers. I love how he says that. Theologically, it freaks people out. Wait, what? He's the Savior of all men, especially of believers? Well, first of all, who is the living God? The Savior of all men. (laughs) Wait, wait, was it God the Father? Yes. Is it Jesus? Of course it is. And I love passages, verses like this that say, He is God, He is Savior, all in one breath, reminding us who God is. And that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of His nature. Who upholds all things by the word of His power. Hebrews chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 11. I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. And that word Savior, if you went through the Hebrew Scriptures with us, you know this. In Hebrew, it's Yesha. Yeshua. Jesus. It means literally, Yesha means Yah saves. Yahweh saves. In Matthew 1.21, Gabriel is speaking to Joseph in a dream and he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But Joseph's Jewish ears would have heard Gabriel say, You will call his name Yesha. God saves. The Hebrew word for salvation became the very name that Jesus took on himself as he came into the world. Not just a word, but a name, Yeshua, Jesus. And so we're right, we're right back to Jesus being the whole point. But is there a hint here of universalism? He is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. 
So the fact that you're here tonight believing in Jesus, well, good for you, you're saved, but so is everybody else. Is that what he's saying? No. That's not what he's saying. This is absolutely consistent throughout Scripture. John 3.16, For God so loved the world. That's the Savior of all men. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, believers, shall not perish but have eternal life. Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the whole world. Which, which means what? It means that the, uni- that the, the invitation is universal, but salvation is personal. That God's invitation goes out to the whole world, goes out to all men, all men and women. The blood of Christ, I've told you this, is sufficient to wash clean the sins of every person who has ever drawn breath on the planet from day one till the end. That's how huge the sacrifice of Jesus is. So the invitation, the offer of the blood is universal for anyone But salvation is personal. It comes right down to you deciding if you will receive it. You saying, yes, Lord. It depends on you having a moment of faith. I believe. And then you are among the believers who are saved. Verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness But in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Now those are all great individual teachings, and maybe we'll come back to that on Sunday. I haven't decided yet, but number five in your list, if you're keeping a list, the servant is a willing forerunner. Do we have five things, or am I missing something here? We're on five? Okay. Okay, good. The servant is a willing forerunner. Forerunner. Yes, every one of these has a W and an F in it. If you hadn't noticed that. The servant is a willing forerunner. Get this. Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you're young. We get it. And Timothy at this time, I think I told you, he's probably late 20s, early 30s. A young man by comparison. I remember being a young youth pastor and wondering why in the world should any parent want to talk to me about their teenager? I don't even have teenagers. I can hang out with teenagers, but I don't know how to discipline or, you know, parent them. And yet parents would call me, and I don't know, how does that work? And then I would come to this verse, let no one look down on your youthfulness. So I guess even younger people have something to bring. But what he's saying to Timothy is saying, Timothy, look, you need to go out ahead. In speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example For everybody else. Paul is calling for Timothy and for all who would serve Jesus to be willing forerunners. And we see this thing all the time. We see this in celebrities who refuse to be examples. Sports stars who reject the notion that there are younger people or even older people who are impressed by what they do and follow after how they behave. 
Why is it that when we watch all the commercials, it's athletes who are out there drinking the power drinks? And then we go, oh, I'm going to drink that so I can look like him. Which is just stupid. Why is it that people adulate celebrities at all? Especially when they do the dumb things they do. I don't even have to give example, I'm not going to. But what celebrities do is they get out there, they're in front of the whole world, and then they say, I don't have to be an example for anybody. I'm going to go get my fourth DUI. Who cares who's watching? And it just happens over and over and over. The child stars, they rise and they fall. And then they get mad at the world. Listen, the servant knows. The servant knows that he or she has a holy influence. To be a servant of the Lord Christ, you are called to be an example to somebody or to some bodies. Your influence may be small in in a small circle of family or friends, or it may be large in a large business or corporation. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, hey, guess what? This is part of the deal. You don't get to hide out. You don't get to play silent Christian. The servant of Jesus is an example, and the servant of Jesus accepts that voluntarily. Okay, Lord, if by my following you, someone else ends up following you, so be it. I will be an example. And when we talk about things like speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, it's not so that you can have better speech or that you can look at yourself and go, hey, I conducted myself pretty well in that situation. Or, hey, I'm a more loving or faithful or pure person. It's not about you and your own salvation. It's for everybody else. Why do we consistently follow Jesus? Why be the faithful servant? Because the world is watching, and so is the church, and so is your family, and so are your friends. Are you willing to be a forerunner for them? Paul says, Timothy, that's you, man. I know you're young, but I need you to be a willing forerunner. Psalm 110, verse 3. We quote a lot around here. It's just a good one. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. We usually quote that when we're looking for people to sign up for children's. (laughs) He says, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth, that is your youthful ones, are to you as the dew. Timothy is one of the youthful ones. Are you one of the youthful ones? Are you someone who says, yeah, but there are people a lot more experienced in Christ? See, here's the thing. Youthful one isn't necessarily how old you are chronologically. It may be how mature you are spiritually. You could be 75 years old and just be a baby Christian. And be looking at those around you going, I'm a little kid in Christ here. Why should anyone listen to me? Hey, be an example. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. If you've known Christ for six months, don't let anybody look down on that. You walk with Him. You live for Him. You be an example. You be a willing forerunner. And note this. In that psalm, Psalm 110, verse 3, it says your people will volunteer freely. He says, in holy array. You know what that means? Holy array speaks of armaments. It's warfare. It speaks of, of of a... an army, a, a military force. And what, what it says is that they volunteer freely. These youthful ones are signing up. There's no draft. There's no selective service with God. Just eager volunteers willing to be forerunners for the kingdom. 
willing to, using the word we used before, stick their necks out, put themselves out there and say, yes, I am a Christian. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I am doing everything in my power to be more pure. To conduct myself in a godly way. To be faithful and loving. To use speech that is appropriate to the Lord. The last of the Hebrew prophets was a forerunner. You know his name, John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, "Make the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the, the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Do you know what was required of John to be the forerunner? Have you ever thought about what he had to do? What he had to accept? I mean, he was a miracle baby as it was to Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were roughly Abraham and Sarah's age around the time that they gave birth to Isaac. That's when they got John. But when he was born, first of all, he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, which is pretty cool. He got baptized in the Spirit, and he wasn't even born yet. Born again before he was born. So he was born again when he was actually came out of the birth canal. That's, anyway, that's, we can talk about that another time. What was required of John? Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Listen to this. He will be great, the angel is speaking to Zacharias, says he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now let me ask you this. How would you feel if the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that was dumped on you? That's now your responsibility. That's what you get to do, do, what you get to be. What if John the Baptist had said, no thanks, I'd rather have home-cooked meals and beer than live off wild honey and bugs? What if he said, I don't want that life? Don't put that on me, man. Don't tell me i got to be an example. i got to turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. i got to live this holy, pure, prophet life. No choice. This is what he was assigned to do. What if he had said no? By the way, John got his head chopped off as a final reward. What if Paul had said, Preach Jesus? Oy vey, no way. Not going to do it. On the Damascus Road. I'm going to stumble blindly into town and I'm going to do something else. And so, Paul ultimately would say in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, I think very humbly, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Paul was a forerunner. Timothy followed and was followed. Paul says to Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 7, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame and have nothing bad to say about us. Man, that's a lot of pressure. 
to be that way always? Hey, servants of Jesus Christ, you are never off. You are never not a servant of Jesus Christ. Well, I am when no one's looking. Uh Uh-uh. Because everyone's always looking. You are called to be an example. And yes, I agree, it's a lot of pressure unless Christ is in you. I have found in my ministry life, professional ministry life, as a pastor, that the times when it weighs heaviest on me are the times where I am not so well focused on Jesus as I should be. Because when I turn my eyes on Jesus, the weight lifts. And I realize all I have to do is watch Him. Because the forerunner is a follower. You are the best forerunner you can be. If you will just follow Jesus, you become a willing forerunner. And what if, what if Jesus had said, Father, take this cup from me. My will be done, not yours. I die for no man. Where would we be if He was not a willing forerunner? Do you realize Jesus was a forerunner? We always think of the forerunner as John the Baptist, but Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the forerunner. And we follow the forerunner ourselves, becoming then forerunners for those who follow Jesus, but they're coming on behind us. A forerunner for Christ is just a follower of Christ. And He went first and Jesus stuck out His neck, didn't He? He put His neck on the line. He spread His arms wide. And He said, Matthew 16.24, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So are you willing, servants of Christ, to be forerunners for others to follow after? Verse 13. Until I come, Paul writes, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery or by the elders. Verse 15, Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And so more of this willing forerunner that everybody will see how you're progressing in your faith. Why? Because it will help them progress in their faith. This is now the second of three times that Paul reminds Timothy of his commission to ministry. He keeps bringing this up. He does it in 1 Timothy 1.18. He does it again in 2 Timothy 1.6 where he says there, Kindle it afresh. Kindle afresh. Keep, Keep the fires of your gifting burning. We'll talk about that more when we get to 2 Timothy, but you know what that means? It means that if you have been gifted by the Lord, it is your responsibility to stoke the gift. It's not like, oh, I have the gift, cool. Let's go do something else. 
If you're given the gift by the Lord, whatever your spiritual gift is, it is your responsibility to stir it up. Your responsibility to kindle it. And along with prayer, the best way to keep your gift kindled is number six in our list. The servant is word-focused. The servant is word-focused. Man, you are just in the Word of God. By simply being in the Word, your gift will remain kindled, will be hot, will remain ignited for the Lord. The servant is word-focused. Note this, even anointed Pastor Tim, with his teaching gift, had to, as Paul says in verse 15, take pains with these things. Now, you might say, well, but he's been given the gift of teaching. So he should just be able to walk up there and teach. Uh Uh-uh. Take pains with this. Be absorbed in it, he says. Be absorbed. Literally, that be absorbed in it, it means be in it. Be in your teaching. Take pains is the word melatao, not melatonin. That's a different approach. Melatao, which means to meditate on, to ponder, even to plot a course. Plot a course in these things. Get into it. Study it. Be in the Word. Well, wait a minute. Paul, the, the presbytery laid their hands on him. And Timothy has the gift of teaching. So he should just be able to get up there and shake and bake and not have to study at all. And you know what? I've had a lot of pastor friends who believe that. I'll just read the passage on the way to work. I know, because I was one. (laughs) I was the young youth pastor who had my Bible open in the front seat as I was driving to Sunday school trying to figure out what I was going to tell the kids. Banking on personality and caffeine to make it happen. And feeding them all kinds of prattle. And empty calories. I can tell you when I come to teach on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning, I have pages and pages of notes. Now, I don't always refer to them because a lot of it, the study is already in. And there are many times where the Lord takes me way off course and I have no idea where I am. You've seen that before. I'm not sure where we are. Let me see the difference. Okay, right there. But I do that because I have a responsibility to the gift. Oh, so Rick thinks he has the gift of... No, I... I don't. That's not it. Besides, a gift is something given to you. It's not something you've generated in and of yourself. A gift is the most humbling thing that you can have because it was given to you by someone else and it's not really yours. But when it comes to teaching, I don't dare show up without any preparation. Why? Because I might just stand up here like an idiot or worse... I might share some doctrines of demons and not even know I'm doing it. Prattle. No, the servant is word-focused. Be absorbed in it. Take pains in it. And I would say to any spiritual gift that you have, be absorbed in it. Take pains with it. Focus on it. Grow it. Stir it up. Kindle it. Stay with it. And then in verse 16, finally, he says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, watch this, (laughs) you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Whoa. Big theological problem. 
You will ensure salvation if you do these things? Timothy, if you teach the Word well, maybe you'll go to heaven. Is that what he's saying? Timothy, if you do this, then you're going to save other people and maybe you'll get saved too. Man, this used to really bug me, this verse. Number seven, jot this down in your notes. The servant watches his or her own feet. He or she watches his or her own feet. Persevere in these things. Pay close attention to yourself. My eyes are not out on the, on the body, on the fellowship to see who's sinning, who's messing up. No, my eyes are watching my feet to make sure that they are in line with Jesus Christ. I think if we all would do that, we'd be far less gossipy and judgmental and far more compassionate because we would see how often our own feet start going the wrong direction or our shoes get untied or we're tripping over ourselves. No, the servant watches his feet. So what about this? Is Timothy saved? Of course he is. And is it salvation by grace? Of course it is. So what is Paul saying when he says, if you do this or as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you? Well, maybe it's the word. Maybe it's not the word salvation that we think it is. Oh, it's the word. It's sozo in the Greek. This is the word for salvation. So as you do this, Timothy, you will be saved and you will save those who you teach. Please understand this. You might even jot this down. Get this in your minds. Paul is not talking about being saved for eternity. He's talking about being saved from heresy. That's what's going on in the entire chapter. As you teach the sound doctrine, as you are nourished on the good word, as you stir up the gift that's within you, as you teach and prescribe these things, Timothy, you're going to save yourself from heresy. And you're going to save all those who listen to you from false doctrine as well. The deceitful spirits, the doctrines of demons, the disingenuous liars, you will be saved from it. That's why at the bridge we are so into the Word of God. This is why we have been determined to go verse by verse and to stay in the Bible and and see what God has from His Word and by His Word. That's how we navigate in this world. We navigate by the Word. And in so doing... We save ourselves from bogus teaching. What starts to happen is because I know the truth so well, the counterfeit becomes obvious. And as we are in the Word together, man, we save ourselves and we save other people from worldly deceptions that come on us so quickly and so easily. Are your feet firmly planted in the word of truth over and against the lies of this age. That is absolutely key. But like I said as we started, this is good food. This is just bread and butter for the servant. You know, this is what we dine on. This is is staple stuff. Practical, tangible, nourishing, tasty, actionable training for the disciplined servant. And once again, if you missed any of these, it is that we would be well-fed, that we would reject worldly fables, work out faith, walk filled with Christ as willing forerunners who are word-focused, watching our feet. And I ask you, is this you? Is that you? Based on this whole chapter, as you read through this, do you go, oh, 
Yeah, I see myself in there. Or do you read through it and go, wow, that's not me. I wish it was, but I know it's not. I want you to think about one thing before we go tonight. Turn over to 1 John. There is a principle here that must not be missed for any willing servant of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1. Verse uh, 6. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Skip over to chapter 2, verse 28. Now little children, again He says, abide in Him. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Look now at chapter 3, verse 7. Little children. I love when John calls us that. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one, note this, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, please understand, John is not saying in verse 9 that if you uh, practice, that no one who, he says no one who's born of God practices sin. He's not saying that no one who's born of God ever sins anymore, that all your sin stops and that you, man, you've just been covered with a spiritual Teflon and sin just slides right off. That's not what he's describing here. He's saying, if you're born of God, you don't practice sin. If I'm a trumpet player, I don't practice the cello. You see what I'm saying? That the key here, that we need to not miss, is when it comes to being a servant of Jesus Christ, practice makes servants. Practice. Well, I'm not a good servant. Okay, practice. I'm really weak when it comes to speech, love and conduct and dignity and purity and all. Okay, practice. Practice good speech. Practice purity. Put these things, 1 Timothy chapter 4, put it into play. You want a homework assignment this week? Practice exactly what Paul described to Timothy. Just read it over and take, okay, today, this morning, I'm going to read this. I'm going to put this into practice today. Make yourself little note cards. So you can look at it. Okay. Willing forerunner. Okay, I'm going to practice being an example today. And you might fall flat on your face. We used to call it clams. In music, you hit a bad note, we called it a clam. If it was a little bad note, all the people in the band would go like this. If it was a big bad note, we'd be going like this, you know. Clam! That's why it's called practice. Because the more we practice these things, 
the more we become the very servants that we want to be. Christianity is absolutely practical. Get it? Practical because we practice these things. We don't wallow in self-pity. We don't sit there and keep going over and over and over the sins most recent or years ago. We don't keep thinking about the skinned knees and the broken ankles and the stupid stuff that we did. We don't wallow in that stuff anymore. We practice righteousness. Well, isn't that hypocrisy? No, it's called practice. It's hypocrisy if you think you just are good. But it's practice if you know that anything good in you is the treasure Jesus Christ. So man, just keep serving, keep practicing, and one day soon, you and I, we will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Father, make us servants like that. Teach us to practice the Word, to practice prayer, to practice righteousness and holiness and godliness, to be a people who just, we're just working these things out because we want to be like Jesus. And Father, if someone was to say, well, you're a hypocrite, we say, yeah, I'm practicing not being that too. Oh, Holy Spirit of the living God, it is by Your power that we can put any of these things into practice. But I pray tonight, if anyone has sin issues and and hurt and, and is just struggling, needs to be cleansed, desires restoration, Lord, let that fall on us tonight a realization of the perfect blood work of Jesus and then Father would you pick us up would you dust us off and lead us to practice your righteousness again in the holy name of Jesus we pray Amen God bless you